So good morning and uh, welcome <clears throat> to Awaken Church. Sorry, I lost my voice a week or so ago and it's still recovering, so give me a bit of grace here. But I'm excited that you're here and if it's been a while or if this is your first time as a church, we're in the midst of a series that we've entitled Game of Thrones, which I know is going to be a bit weird if you think this series has anything to do with the Starks or Lannisters or direwolves or dragons or Westeros. It doesn't. Instead, what we're doing is we're taking a journey through the life of King David of Israel. And for those of you who are familiar with the story of King David in the Bible, what you know is that the series is going to include a crown and a throne. It's going to include some illicit stories, strategic battles, examples of honor, and also examples of betrayal. But that's not the reason why we've chosen to spend eight weeks studying the life of David. Instead, we're spending eight weeks... Oh my goodness, you are amazing. Thank you, love. I know, that's my wife. She's a beauty and great one. So, um, instead, the reason why we're spending eight weeks in this series is because there are key life lessons to be learned from the example set by the one man the scriptures say was a man after God's own heart. So in week one, we studied what God looks for when he looks for champions. And what we learned is what God seeks out most often is who we are and what we do when no one else is watching. That matters to God. God sees what others do not. And based on what God sees and others do not, he will either throw down hypocrites or raise up champions. And then in week two, we read the story of David and Goliath and examined giants in our own lives. And our giants usually aren't nine feet, nine inches tall with a sword and spear, but it can feel like that sometimes for us, right? That's what trials and, and difficulties can sometimes feel like. And when we face giants in life, what is important for us to remember is if we live by sight, we will also quit by sight. But when we live by faith, then what we see is that Jesus is bigger than any giant. And then in week three, we focus on the idea of leadership and what type of leadership and influence we want to wield with our lives. Are we going to be jealous and pity and bitter, as Saul often was, leveraging our influence mainly for our own good? Or are we going to follow the example of David and instead leverage our influence and impact to bless others? And then finally, last week, Andrew shared on what friendship looks like and what covenant, how covenant friendships work. And covenant friendships are about us remaining true to one another, despite circumstances. It involves guarding one another in both word and deed. So that brings us to today. And so far over the course of the four weeks we've taught so far, David has not yet been proclaimed king. So all this talk about King David, those first four weeks are just about David, the regular Joe Schmo. And up until this part of the story, David has been both a, has been a shepherd in his father's field. He's been a warrior and commander under King Saul. He's been a runaway rebel, right, on the run, being chased and hunted by that same king. And though David has been anointed by God as by God's prophet to be the next king of Israel, the reality is that has not come to fruition. And if for a time... It looked like it might not even come at all. But King Saul is defeated in a battle with the Philistines. His three sons, three of his sons, I'm sorry, 
are killed on that battlefield as well, including Jonathan, who was David's best friend. Saul sees his sons dead, sees the battle lost, and instead of, uh, and he's been wounded as well, and so instead of being taken captive by the Philistines, he chooses to fall on his own sword and kill himself. So in one fell swoop, David transformed from rebel outlaw to promised king. And that's where we are in the story of David. And so before we go into the story of David, I want to pose for you a question to consider as we go through this series. A question that's going to be at the heart of what we're going to be sharing today. And it's a question that some of you are facing and wrestling with now. Some of you have not. Some of you will be, right? But here's the question. What happens when your dreams finally come true? What happens when your dreams finally come true. You know, so much of our cultural fantasies in this, in this country of ours, this great country of ours, revolves around this idea of the happy ending or what it means to live happily ever after. And we all have an idea in our minds of what this looks like for us. We have our happy ever after or happy ending in our minds, and we imagine what it looks like, and it drives us. We chase after it. We put conditions on it. But what's really interesting is if we're honestly thinking about the dreams we have, right, the things we want to achieve, what we realize is it's not a static target. It moves, right? It changes over time. In other words, the things that 20 years ago I would have said were my dreams are not the same dreams as today and likely won't be the same dreams 20 years from now. So the things we dream about are moving targets and our dreams do come true over time. But then what do we do? We find a new one. So I know most of you in here are probably millennials, but I'm a Gen Xers, so you millennials can keep your Kanye, your Justin Timberlake, your Pink, and Beyonce. I'm with you on Taylor Swift, but even she's kind of going a bit out there, right? But Gen X, I mean, we had U2, we had Michael Jackson, we had Madonna, Duran Duran, Police, Bon Jovi. I mean, these are legends here, right? So that's who we had. And uh, we also had grunge. And one of the front uh, leading uh, movements of the, or bands that led the grunge movement was a band called Nirvana. And for those of you heard of Nirvana, you guys are familiar so, with Nirvana. Fantastic, right? So uh, the older ones among us, the more mature among us are nodding you. We remember, right? Kurt Cobain. Uh, their song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, was uh, considered to be one of the greatest rock stars of all time. So I want to take a moment for you youngsters to tell you a bit about Kurt Cobain. So Kurt Cobain, in the 1980s, he uh, dropped out of high school. to uh, So he was an excitable uh, and happy kid growing up. But there was something that happened, right? His uh, parents ended up getting divorced. He later shared in interviews that that had a profound impact on his life because afterwards he became more defiant and withdrawn. And so he did, as I shared earlier in the 80s, dropped out of high school to pursue his dream of forming a band. And after he uh, established his first band, which was called Fecal Matter, we're probably grateful that one never ended up being a success, right? Um, he ended up partnering up in 1988 to form Nirvana. And their first album wasn't a huge commercial success, but it put him on the map. It attracted a loyal following, and it showcased Kurt Cobain's uh, songwriting talent. And then in 1991, they signed with a new label and released their second album, Nevermind, which ended up being this huge success and launched Cobain into this role of being the spokesman for his, or a spokesman for his generation and noted as being one of the greatest songwriters of his time. So if you can imagine, 20 
four years old and having your biggest dreams come true. Kurt Cobain was there. So what happens after your dreams finally come true? What happens next? That's the question, right? What happens after your dreams finally come true? What happens next? Well, King David, at the age of 30, has seen his dreams come true. That's where we are in the story. So we're going to jump into 2 Samuel 5 and share his story. 2 Samuel 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel for the third time. So David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned from Judah, from Hebron, for seven years and six months. And from Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So after years of serving, after years of fighting, and after years of running, David finally becomes king of Israel. And if you can imagine the great joy and honor of this, right, that the leaders of all these different tribes have come together and said, David, you are one of us. And not only that, God has chosen for you to lead us. And now that we look back, we've seen it the entire time. You were always our leader. And it's not just being appointed. You understand if you're in David's position, if you can imagine what this feels like. It's not simply being appointed and anointed king of Israel. It's the best and brightest of your, the best and brightest of your countrymen saying, you are the best of us. And God has chosen you to lead us, and we see that. And not only for you to be our king to govern in peace, but to be our captain in war. This is the day David was promised. This is the David, this is the day that he's been dreaming about. And at 30 years old, a relatively young age, he is now the most powerful man in the kingdom. And what does he do first? He strikes out to conquer the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, you'll never get in here, right? Even the blind and lame can keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe, but David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. And that is the origin of the saying, the blind and lame may not enter the house. So David made the fortress his home. He called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, has always been a prominent city. Uh, Melchizedek, if you guys remember Melchizedek from the time of Abraham, the king who came to bless Abraham, he was uh, king and lived in Israel before Israel was ever Israel. In the days of Joshua, Jerusalem was one of the chief cities in southern Canaan. And as a capital, it's a perfect site. Not only is it central to Israel's territories, has good communication routes all across the country, but the city also has strong defenses. The city of Jerusalem had walls that had never been breached. That is about to change. 
So David marches up his army to the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites are currently living in Jerusalem, and they have been in there since the very beginning. They're the original settlers. They're the ones who settled the city, built the walls, and they have, they're the OG, right? The original, that's not what OG means, but you know, they're the original settlers. You understand? They have never been conquered, never been beaten. And so they see David's paltry army coming up, and they're saying, Our blind and lame could defend this wall from you guys, right? You are not going to breach the unbreachable city. And David, of course, using the water tunnels, does so. And when he does, when David's armies conquer the city, he uses the term that we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about David and Goliath, right? He says, the reason why we conquered is because the Lord God of heaven's armies is with me. That was what? Jehovah Saba. So we talk about the Lord of hosts, the Lord of war is with us. And so earlier we talked about what happens when dreams come true, and the question that inevitably follows after we see our dreams come true is what's next. So let's talk about that practically. So what happens, guys, when the girl you finally work up the courage to ask out says yes? What happens after the job you've been dreaming about finally gets offered to you? What happens when, after years of trying, you finally discover you're pregnant? What happens after years of sacrificing and saving, you're finally able to purchase your first home? What happens after your dreams finally comes true? The question inevitably arises, what's next? Most of us, if we've experienced that in our lives in some way, shape, or form, before, you do what David did, right? You lock it down. So after the girl says yes, you're going to take her on the best stinking date you can possibly imagine, right? You're going to give her the best experience she can possibly imagine. Um, if you get your job, your dream job, what do you do? You show up early on the job, and you work your butt off the entire time. What happens when you uh, discover you're pregnant? After years of wanting to be, you start taking those refrigerator-sized prenatal vitamins and set up your appointment with a doctor, right? What do you do when you finally get into your first home? You start buying furniture and decorating all these things to be able to, to make your house your own. Does that make sense? When you get the thing you dreamed about, you lock it down. And that's what David is doing here. He's finally been anointed king. And what he, what he does is he's like, I want to lock this kingship down. And the way he does that is he says, I'm going to decide Jerusalem is going to be my city, the city I rule from. Zion's going to be my city. So he goes in and he conquers the city. That is why the first thing he does after being anointed king is take on the city of Jerusalem because he says, this is the place from which I'm going to rule. And as the scripture shared in verse 5, he does so for the next 33 years. And then the following verses, what you're going to find is all the other nations as well recognize what David has accomplished. And so King Hiram sends him wood and things and says, hey, go ahead and build your house. And through it all, God, or David realizes it is God who has blessed him with these things. And then what happens next? He's in his city. He's established his city. He's, had, he's built his home. He is his, his uh, not castle, his... Uh, Whatever. So and he starts having kids and wife, and he establishes his family there. And then in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. 
but David was told they were coming. So he went into the stronghold. The Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephaim. And David asked the Lord, should I go out and fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replied to David, yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. So earlier I shared with you all the story of Kurt Cobain from the band Nirvana, the man who got everything he dreamed of at the age of 24. And what did he discover at the age of 24? What he discovered is that getting everything you dreamed of isn't where the story ends. And getting, thing, getting everything you dreamed of also doesn't guarantee you you're happily ever after. So Nirvana's Nevermind album was released in 1991. Soon afterwards, Kurt Cobain married Courtney Love, and together they welcomed a daughter. But not everything was good. He and Courtney Love, they ended up doing drugs together. It was a physically abusive relationship, and it went on in the home, outside. And after three years later, right, in 1994, three years after being on the mountaintop, releasing the album called a, a, you know, uh, the, one of the best songwriters of his age, being called a spokesman of his generation, in March of 1994, Kurt Cobain made his first suicide attempt. He overdosed on drugs. It actually put him in a coma. And after coming out of it, he was put into uh, drug treatment. He became a bit more reclusive. Family and friends came to try and, and care for him and, and intervene for him, all to no avail. Because a month after that first attempt, Kurt Cobain put a shotgun in his mouth and fired killing himself instantly. So three years after seeing all of his dreams come true, everything he might have wished for happened, releasing one of the most iconic songs and albums of all time, Kurt Cobain was dead by suicide. Now, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen to all of us when our dreams come true, right? That would be a bad end to this. And that story, I'm sure, is a bit atypical. I simply share it because I want you to understand and catch this point, right? The point that I want to make is the same. It is a strange and almost illogical truth to realize that getting what we want doesn't guarantee our happiness. Getting what we want doesn't necessarily make us happy. Getting what we want doesn't necessarily take away all of our problems. In fact, sometimes it causes even more problems. So for that guy who finally asked out the girl of his dreams, she said yes, he takes her out, which he now realizes I'm in a relationship now. And that costs money. It can, a lot of money if for some guys, right? It can lead you into to certain temptations and it entangles your heart and entangles your life in a way that isn't always healthy. You got your dream job? Fantastic. What you find is that often leads to long hours and constantly trying to prove yourself so they don't take that dream job away. Getting pregnant? Um, getting pregnant means you have kids. And we've all asked, right? All of us parents, we've asked ourselves, what in the world were we thinking after we have kids, right? And then getting our first home, it gets expensive. We've got a mortgage. We're kind of stuck where we are. The responsibility of keeping our house clean, paying for repairs, it just ends up being a lot. And so you understand that getting what we want doesn't end the story. It's not like we walk off into the sunset and everything's done. Life still happens after our dreams come true. And that's what David experienced here, right? He is king of Israel, the most powerful man in the country. He's established his throne in the city of Jerusalem, the city that had never been taken in its history. 
And now when everything seems golden, what does he face? He faces an old nemesis, the Philistines, coming to attack him. And this shouldn't have been any surprise. In 2 Samuel 3, God told him this was going to be a part of his legacy, right? In 2 Samuel 3.18, now is the time for God has said, I've chosen David to save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from all their other enemies. So God said already that he was going to choose David to be king. And part of that choosing was for him to be their captain of war, to lead God's armies over the Philistines and other enemies that would strike at Israel. And so when David is facing these armies, ready to destroy his young reign, I want you to notice what his first response was. Can we put those passages back up? Um, his first response, right, was not to prepare the armies, but to ask the Lord God, what he should do. Now you understand, David has been warrior leading men into battle for years. He is a tested fighter on the battlefield. He's a tested leader, and yet his first, he's not putting his hope, his strength, or his trust in his experience or in his armies. He's putting them in the Lord, Jehovah Saba. So the passage continues, verse 20. So David went to Baal-perazim and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it. You see his first reaction? We went to battle. We fought. Some of my men died. And after the victory, he doesn't say, wow, that's fantastic. He says, the Lord did it. David proclaimed. He burst through my enemies like a raging flood. And so he named that place Baal-perazim, which means the Lord breaks through. The Philistines has abandoned their idols there, so David and his men confiscated them. So they smashed the Philistines. They march out the gates after David asks, should I go? And God says, I'm going to give them into your hands. He goes out the front gates. He storms the enemy and on the battlefield destroys them. And then he says, the Lord did it. And he names the battlefield, the place where he sees this breakthrough victory. He names the city or that area breakthrough. That's what he names the place where he sees the victory. Everything he does is to honor the Lord God for the victory. Have you ever experienced a breakthrough in your life? I'm sure some of you have. You just might not have thought of it as, as a breakthrough, right? Praying for healing for either yourself or someone that you know and seeing them get healed, right? Praying that God provides financially and seeing God provide. Praying for victory and then winning, right? Praying for an opportunity and then seeing it come about. Praying that God gives you an A on that test, even though you did no studying, right? And God gives you an A. And so what did you do when you experienced that breakthrough? You probably did what David did. You said, thank the Lord. I hope you did. You said, thank you, Jesus, for getting me through that, right? That's what David did. He praised the Lord. And, and, and for me, even just to be, have that reminder, and hopefully for you too, right, to make that a habit of ours, that when God breaks through on our behalf, we say praise the Lord and to mean it. David praises God for the victory won on the battlefield. Now, we understand in these breakthroughs, we still have a part to play. David didn't just simply pray the Lord and then sit behind the walls waiting for them to come. He took his armies out. In the same way, when we go, when we're praying, right, even if we're praying for success on a test that we really haven't studied as much as we should have for, we still have to go in there and take the test, right? We still have a part to play, but God is the one who gives us the victory. And you think that after seeing this happen over and over again with Goliath and now here, and of course, even in the times in the wilderness, the Philistines would get that God is with David. But they have not learned their lesson. They're a determined bunch. And so they strike up, and after this defeat, they rise up to attack again. 
Verse 22. But after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephaim. And again, David asked the Lord what to do. Don't attack them straight on, the Lord replied, which is what they did last time. Don't attack them straight on. Instead, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. And when you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on the alert. That will be the signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. All right. Think on these verses for a little bit and what is happening here. That's some crazy advice. The last time the Philistines came out, David asked the Lord, and God said, yeah, I'm giving them into your hands. Go out and take them. And so you march out the city, you face them on the battlefield, and you defeat them. That's how war is to be fought, right? This time, God says something very different. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to go out and face them head on. Instead, I want you to be sneaky. I want you to circle around and hide behind the trees and hide among the trees. And then while you're hiding in the trees, your signal to go won't be a horn, won't be a yell, won't be a shout. Instead, I just want you to listen. And when you listen to the trees and the wind blowing through the trees, you're going to hear this sound that sounds like marching feet at the top of the trees. That's what you're to listen for. And then after you hear that, go and attack. Isn't that weird? For God to say, this is the way I want you to see the battle happen? If I was David, I'd kind of like, you know, yeah, so can we just go back to our previous strategy? Because that worked really well last time. And God, aren't you the one who's fighting on our behalf anyway? And if you're fighting, why do we have to resort to sneakiness and underhanded, maybe not underhanded, but these weird tactics in order to win the battle? You are God. You can take out any army out there. Why would the Lord of war have to resort to trickery? So, how this uh, might connect with our lives. So again, some of you have, have said, well, I, I have experienced breakthroughs in my life. I have seen God answer prayer over things that we were desperately praying for, right? We got the A on the test we didn't really study for. We saw someone we loved get healed after we prayed for them. We saw God provide for us in some way, shape, or form. We saw some type of victory where we prayed at the last minute. We prayed desperately and then, bam, we got our spiritual breakthrough. And afterwards, he said, praise God, that really worked. And then what happened? Another situation comes up. Another friend, another family member gets sick. Another test comes up. And we do the same thing we did the first time. We pray desperately. We pray with our whole hearts. And then something happens. It doesn't pan out. It seems like God didn't answer our prayers in the same way. The person we were praying for who was sick got even sicker. We ended up failing that test. We ended up not seeing God provide. And what do we do when that happens, right? What do we do when we pray for a breakthrough? It worked for us before. We did it again, and we didn't get our victory. What do we tend to do? Well, most of us, we tend to think, well, maybe I did something wrong, right? Maybe I didn't pray hard enough. Maybe I took God for granted. Maybe I did something differently this time than I did last time, right? What we tend to think is we messed up the formula somehow. That's what we did before. It didn't work. I didn't pray desperately enough. I prayed with the wrong motives. But what if that's not what really happened? Our God is not a God of formulas. And that's especially evident when you look at the battles that took place in the Old Testament. 
When you look at the battles that took place in the Old Testament, there are a number of different ways God won battles on the battlefield, right? Uh, Circle the city of Jericho and watch the walls fall down. What kind of strategy is that? We want to take a walled city, and God tells us, just march around the city, and I'll cause the walls to fall. Gideon took 300 men. He had a huge army. God told him, send them all home except for 300 men, and that's how you're going to win your victory, right? Winning victory by banging shields and making loud noises. Head in, in your face, fighting, right? Circling around in the poplar trees, waiting for the sound of marching feet at the top, right? God is not a God of formulas. He's not a genie in the lamp, right? That if we rub just the right way a certain number of times, he's going to answer our prayers and give us what we want. And we know that, right? Intellectually, we understand that, but oftentimes we don't treat him that way. Instead, we kind of resort to a formula when we go before God, wanting God to do something for us. And what God is, God's response, right, is that my concern, right, God's concern is not necessarily how things are going to turn out in your situation. God's concern is relationship, and that's something David understands. In these passages that we just run through, it's just a small example of how David understands God. After years of serving, after years of fighting, after years of running, what David understood is God will give the victory, but usually not in the way I want it done. And that's why when you look at the example of David, if we track back a little bit, When David had Saul in his hands in the cave, that's what we talked about two weeks ago, and Saul was right there by himself doing the royal squat, and David was there, right there, his men told him, this is the opportunity, right? This is a God moment. Seize it. Kill him. David said, no, God has not told me to do so, and I'm not going to. He had another opportunity later. We had Saul at his mercy. He says, no, I'm going to wait. Even after Saul was killed, And he became king. Do you realize he didn't become king of Israel? He became king of Judah. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, actually became king of Israel. And for seven and a half years, David waited to see what God was going to do. David was the one given the promise that he'd be king over Israel. But instead of seizing it and taking it away from Ishbosheth, he waited. He said, I am not going to seize the throne my way. I'm going to wait until God gives me the victory. Over and over and over and over again, the example David sets is that he will wait and he will seek after God, right? His relationship with God was more important than the way God was going to answer his prayer. So here's the lesson as we wrap up. God's will, God's way, and God's time. I want you to say that with me. God's will, God's way, and God's time. Again, God's will... God's way in God's time. One more time. God's will, God's way in God's time. God is the one who gives us the victory. But the means by which that victory happens will always be in God's hands. And we have to be okay with that. God doesn't work the same way twice. And even if he does, don't expect it to happen again. God is not a genie in a bottle that you rub the right way, say the right words, and all of a sudden, poof, he comes out and gives you what you want. God loves breaking out of the boxes we try to put him into. But that was a temptation that David rarely, if ever, fell into. 
David was a man after God's own heart because David freshly sought God's heart over and over and over again throughout his life. That seeking God's heart was more important to him than whatever result came from it. That is why David was a man after God's own heart. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, Then he said to me, This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God's will, God's way, and God's time. If we capture that principle, if we understand this, and, and following after the example of David, right, to realize that our relationship matters more to him and the way we chase after God's heart matters so much more to him than, quote-unquote, the results we see, the victory we experience. It will revolutionize our lives. And I think that's a good thing to experience. God's will, God's way, and God's time. So next week, uh, the story of Bathsheba. So I'm looking forward to seeing you all then. So let's pray and close up and we'll have Larry run through our announcements. Lord God, thank you so much for this time for this morning. For those of us able to experience, even as we're going through the story of David, what it looks like when our dreams come true, the things we pray for comes to fruition, and then to realize that when they do, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of the story, and it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be happy. And God, that's such a great lesson, but it's a counterintuitive one. It's not the one our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that when we get our, the thing we want, it's happily ever after, and God... For those of us who have been there, who have seen you provide, we realize that's not necessarily true. Our flesh will always find something else to want. And so, Lord, I pray that instead of chasing this never-ending carrot of getting what we want, we would seek instead to pursue you as David did, to know your heart, to come before you freshly every single time there's a need, and to say, Lord, what is it that you want of us? Lord, how can we bless you? Lord, how can we glorify your name? How can we accept your will, your way, and your time? Lord, I pray that that would be the spirit and the attitude we have, is to prioritize knowing you over the results of it. And God, that's so difficult to do because we're all so results-oriented. We can all be so selfish, and we're in this for what we want. And God, that is not how you've crafted us to be. And I pray that we would learn to follow the example of David who longed after your heart to long to know you more than anything else in his life. And I pray that we would have that same spirit, we would learn that same lesson, and we would live this way every day from this moment forward. That we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.